You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am Yahweh. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to Yahweh while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am Yahweh. None of the offspring of Aaron, who has a leprous disease or a discharge, may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead, or a man who has had an emission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am Yahweh. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, She shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things, but if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to Yahweh, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to Yahweh, If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to Yahweh to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals, blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to Yahweh or give them to Yahweh as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, 
but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to Yahweh. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them, because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to Yahweh. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Yahweh, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until the morning. I am Yahweh. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am Yahweh. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 612 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, May 6th, 2023. And that was a reading from Leviticus 22. We are coming down the home stretch, maybe another, I don't know, week, week, week and a half, something like that, depending on how many podcasts I can fit in to my busy schedule. In the next couple of weeks, I expect we will be through Leviticus. But for now, let me just reflect a little bit on a theme which should be apparent. It's apparent to me in reading Leviticus. The theme is that God is holy and that God wants our very best. And when that's on an individual basis, we bring him the very best that we have. We don't give him the leftovers, we don't give him the defects. We don't give him the scraps from the table. No, he gets the first fruits. He gets the very, very best. When we're talking in a communal way, when we're talking corporately, and this is going to be the person who is doing the ministering, God wants our very best. He, even from the standpoint of physical defects, because remember, God is dealing with physical people who are living in a physical world that God made. God made them to be physical beings, and he made this a physical world. The Greeks got a bit weird thinking that the mind or the life of the soul or the spirit, that is what is pure, and what is physical is inherently corrupt always. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what God's word says. The same God who made our spirits who made our souls, who made the internal, immaterial part of who we are, our essence. That same God 
made all that is physical as well. And when there are flaws or blemishes or imperfections, or more to the point, when there's damage that's been done to the physical creation that God has made, that might not be yours or my fault specifically, like we're the ones who broke it. And yet all the same, God reminds us throughout his word that that is not the standard. We don't grade on a curve, in other words, and say, well, nobody's perfect. No, God is perfect. Actually, it's not true to say nobody's perfect. If we mean that holistically, God is perfect. And he expects the very best. He wants the the very, very best. Only the best for God. And on the other hand, we say, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus encountering all of these people who were born with this or that disability, or they had been struggling with some health condition for a long time, or they even had a unclean spirit or a demon. There was a demon that had possessed them or was oppressing them. What does it say about Jesus? When he saw them, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them and he healed them. But what does Jesus not do in the gospels? He doesn't say, you're perfect just the way that you are. (laughs) That's how we sometimes talk in very sentimental ways in this day, but he doesn't say, you're perfect just the way that you are. He has compassion on those who have infirmities, those who are broken, which is everybody, actually. It's the stern rebuke for those who think that they are not broken. They think that they are perfect just the way that they are, that we see when Jesus gets upset. He gets angry on occasion. He gets very stern on occasion in the Gospels. And if you'll look closely, and correct me if you find an example that is outside of this description, but in every case I can think of, it's always people who think they're already perfect and therefore they don't need what Jesus has to offer. Those are the ones Jesus is especially stern with. And actually, too, it is the religious leaders. And so here in Leviticus 22, it's interesting to go back in the timeline to when God is first giving the instructions for religious leadership in Israel to Moses to then give to Aaron and his sons, it's interesting to note that God was calling them to perfection. And so what would we do when we come to the New Testament? Would we say that the problem with these religious leaders is that they're perfectionistic? No, no. The problem with the religious leaders is that they act and carry on as though they are perfect when that's not the case. And here is their Messiah. And they should recognize, they should have learned from studying Torah. They should have learned from studying the prophets that they need atonement. They need propitiation. They need expiation. They need for a sufficient sacrifice to be made to take their iniquity away from them, to take it outside the camp in a communal sense, but to take it away from their person on an individual basis. And here he is. Here is the Messiah. And what does the, relig- what, what does the religious leadership do? They hand Messiah over to the Romans to have him put to death. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And herein lies 
the reason for, the basis for, Jesus' stern rebuke of them, his publicly rebuking them, because they were supposed to be expectant. And in a similar way to the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have the religious leaders of Israel having very much fallen asleep and having been asleep for quite some time. And this is, if you'll remember, the reason why they're under foreign occupation in the first place, because they had abandoned worship of God that was their best, that was complete, that was whole. What is it really? I mean, when we look at the examples of uncleanness, when we look at examples of physical defects that God says Aaron or one of his sons or one of his descendants can't minister to God if they have, what's really the point? When you boil it all down, when you're looking for the you're looking for the lowest common denominator. The common point of reference is they are not whole. So if they have some major defect, they're broken. And essentially, the message over and over again is you need someone who is not broken. You need somebody who is whole and complete, who is not damaged goods, to provide a sufficient atoning sacrifice for you. And so do I. I need that, you need that, we all need that, we have that in the person of Jesus Christ. So God himself provides the ram in the thicket in the form of his own son. But it's curious, another thing about Leviticus in general to this point, but also in this chapter, can I just point out that some of what is mentioned, what is talked about, I just, I'm like, man, if this were my grandmother, for instance, and my grandmother mullet was she was a very sweet woman and very proper my grandmother renew was much more blunt she was a, a rosie the riveter in world war 2 and then a public school teacher for decades in milton florida my grandmother renew was more likely to say th- things that you might respond with grandma to <laughs> you shouldn't say that but Here is God talking to Moses and telling Moses to tell Aaron some things which will make us blush to talk about or to read or to think about. And just imagine that you're in Moses' shoes or sandals, and you're supposed to go and explain this to your brother and his sons. Now, that might not be so bad as, you know, talking amongst men and all that, you know, what is this about an emission of semen? What? Come on, Moses. That's what God said. That's what he said. Okay. What, why do you keep talking about crushed testicles? I, I'm just repeating what the Lord told me to tell you. Don't shoot the messenger. But even, even there, right? We don't stop with Moses telling Aaron and his sons what God told Moses. He writes it down for posterity. And we're still reading it. And so the reason I bring this up is some of what's in the headlines these days and some of what is being debated here in the United States of America with regards to our education system pertains to what kind of reading material or visual material is acceptable to have kids being exposed to in public schools. And there are some strong objections 
from many parents across the U.S. to a growing library of books that contain sexually explicit material and essentially are promoting sexual immorality. Now, on the one hand, we would say it's entirely appropriate for us to object to these things and to say it's an evil thing. It's a wicked thing. It's satanic to be encouraging school-aged children to be sexually immoral with each other, to engage in sodomy or oral sex or homosexuality or bisexuality or to become transgendered. We could say that's a horrible, evil thing, black and white, absolutely no question about it. And that's true. That is true. And God have mercy on the souls of those who will repent and turn away from these things after having indulged in them for a time. Hopefully they realize at a certain point what an evil thing they've done. Jesus says in the Gospels, it would be better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be cast into the depths of the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones who believes in Jesus to stumble, that is to sin or to disbelieve God. But let's do make sure we're drawing some distinctions where distinctions are appropriate. The talk of crushed testicles and emissions of semen that we find in the Pentateuch can't be lumped in with, categorized with, the sexually explicit, pornographic, sexually immoral content that is being pushed on children in American public schools in the name of liberation. You cannot have such broad categories that you put these things together and you say, well, we shouldn't ever talk about any of these things around children or two children. Oh, that's not good. Particularly when we come to the dilemma of what about when it's in the text? What about when God's own word gives these things to us? We don't want to find ourselves in the spot of being more innocent, more holy, more appropriate, more moral and upstanding than God. Now, what we do want to do is not be crass about these things. There's an appropriate way to talk about these things at the appropriate time and to not be engaging in coarse jesting. That's also very biblical. Have nothing to do with coarse jesting and that is to say crude anatomical, scatological humor. Don't make light of it. But then how should we think? I would propose that what God's word says here is something of a guide. When it's appropriate to talk about these things, just use the term. Don't use some cutesy term because that might be as bad or worse, as uncomfortable or more uncomfortable than somebody being very, very crass and very jokey about things that really ought to be honored and protected and treated with special dignity and special respect. You know, Paul writes at a certain point to the Corinthians, explaining that the church is like a body, and each of the people who is in a church or in the church, capital C, universal church, Christ's church, each of the people who is in the church is like a different part of the physical body. Eyes, hands, for instance, and this is God's design. So what we need to understand is, one, if you are not possessing of all the spiritual gifts, Paul says, that's not a defect, right? That's not the same thing as what 
is being talked about here in Leviticus 22, as though you are unfit to worship the Lord your God or to serve him. If you don't have all the spiritual gifts, if you are not gifted in all the ways that somebody else is, well, you're just out of luck. No, Paul says God has given different gifts to each of the members of the body so that they can depend on one another, so that they need one another, so that they serve one another. You guys, we're supposed to serve one another with these various gifts. And God intended for us to have different gifts so that no one could say, oh, I have all the gifts. I don't need the rest of you. I'm just going to go do my own thing. I am a sufficient church unto myself. No, that's not what God wants. And that's, if you ever hear it from somebody or they are carrying on like that, that's not true. That's not healthy. That's not mature. That's not wise. If you're part of the church, you need to be serving the body because that's part of your service to God. That's what he's called you to. That's what he's commanded you to do. If you don't have an interest in that, if you're refusing to do that, well, then you're a wicked servant. Beware. But something else that Paul talks about, and in rather more delicate terms to the church at Corinth, is he says something about the parts of the body to which we give less honor or that are less honorable, we cover. And here we should understand he's talking about what I grew up (laughs) having uh, termed private parts, right? So the private parts are the parts that you wear clothes over. And that is to say, we give them honor by covering them up to some extent. We're being modest or we're being dignified and we're saying, this part needs to be protected. And you need to be protected in some sense from being made to feel extraordinarily uncomfortable. But even there, we understand without Paul having to elaborate over much and go into really specific terms, we understand what it is that Paul is getting at there in Corinthians. And yet we go back to Leviticus and we have a different way of communicating about these things. And God gets very specific on a couple of things. Now, I don't think this is an exhaustive list that he's giving, but it is to say that he expects distinctions to be made if physical defects or uncleanness caused by anything that he has said brings uncleanness on a person that is at least temporarily, sometimes permanently disqualifying from ministering in certain ways. And I think there's a principle there that should translate into every walk of life where one, we are praying that God would heal us. And we're looking forward to the day, if we're in Christ, that we get a resurrection body and he has made us whole. He's made us complete again. We look forward to that. And in the short term, we might pray for healing and conclude our prayers with amen, which is so be it, or as you will. But also too, what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't embrace this idea that you're perfect just the way that you are. Because then what are we looking forward to? If you say you're perfect just the way that you are, there's nowhere to go. There's no growth to expect. There's no hope of being restored. If you really are truly broken, maybe that's the equivalent of saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And what comfort is that? It's a false comfort. If even for a time, if even briefly you're taken in by it. Also too, let me just briefly, I want to briefly point out something that I found in this passage interesting is the distinction between the lay people and the priests and how certain things God says very clearly, this is not for a lay person. 
And this is not for a priest. He draws a distinction between the lay people and the priests. And so some of, not all, but some of how we down to the present say that we're not going to ask a minister of God to do this or act in that way. Some of that is very appropriate if we follow the principle enshrined in passages like Leviticus 22. I mean, it's in the New Testament as well that Paul says, for instance, not many of you should be teachers, for we know that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. He also gives out qualifications for overseers and deacons. And we see also something of a soft, and by soft, I mean gently delivered standard of moral perfection for the Christian. And be careful with that because we don't want to make new laws for ourselves where God hasn't commanded certain things generally for the laity, understand that God draws a distinction between those who are clergy and those who are laity. And it's not to say you don't have any expectations for the laity or that you have impossibly high, arbitrary human expectations for the clergy, but it is to say a distinction is communicated to us from God, which we ought to study and we ought to observe. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true for Israel. It's true for the church. And we are still in the New Testament. Let's do remember. But speaking of the New Testament, I was asked a question on Wednesday night. This previous Wednesday night, I was leading a discussion group with all junior high girls. And it was somewhat awkward for me anyways. I think for some of them, it was also awkward. I didn't aspire to head up discussion for a dozen or more junior high girls, but I was happy to help. And one of the really great questions that was asked, and there are some very insightful, very insightful middle school boys and middle school girls in our youth group. And one of them in particular, a certain Hadley, asked why we see the word we in Acts 28. Why do we see the word we if Luke wrote Acts is Luke with Paul? And that's a good question. And actually, I didn't know the answer for sure. Maybe I once upon a time knew the answer, but I had forgotten if I did. I've never really paid a great deal of attention to that. And I didn't want to say maybe, probably so, or sure, or yes, and just bluff. I said, you know what? That's a good question. Now I want to know too. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to go and do some digging. I'm going to try and get you an answer for that. And so I did. And I found a page titled Luke's Eyewitness Accounts in Acts, authored by Kevin Rogers, Investigator 153, November 2013 issue, where he makes the case that, yes, indeed, this is Luke with Paul. And I'll read for you some of this. We won't camp out here for a long, long time, but I want to answer this question that I got from Hadley on Wednesday night, because now you'll know. Now, when somebody asks you the same question, you will know if I share this with you. Introduction. Within the Acts of the Apostles, there are distinct passages where the author writes in first person plural using pronouns such as we, our, and us. If these really indicate When Luke was with Paul, then what does this imply for the dating and reliability of the Acts of the Apostles 
and Luke's gospel. For the first half of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke describes the activities of the protagonists using the third person, e.g. he or they. However, in chapter 16, he starts using first-person plural pronouns such as we, our, and us. The obvious conclusion to draw is that Luke had joined Paul during these phases of his missionary journeys. This is not a constant feature. Luke swaps between first person and third person at distinct points. This allows us to track segments in Paul's travels where it seems as though he was accompanied by Luke. The we sections are summarized in the following table, but we will consider each section in more detail. So first up, Acts 16.10 to verse 18, Troas to Philippi. The approximate date is set at 49 AD. The next section is Acts 20, verse 4, to chapter 21, verse 19. This is Philippi to Jerusalem, approximate dates 54 to 57 AD. Third and finally, we have Acts 27, verse 1, to Acts 28, verse 30. And this is from Caesarea to Rome, approximately 59 to 62 AD. Troas to Philippi, start there. The first we passage occurs in Acts 16, 6 through 10. Note the sudden transition. Starting in verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready and at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This transition occurred at Alexandrian Troas, Kevin Rogers writes, which was an ancient Greek city on the northwestern tip of Turkey. From Troas, the company sailed to Samothrace, Neapolis, and then traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, Act 16, 11 to 12. In Philippi, Paul cast an evil spirit out of a fortune-telling slave girl, taking away her gift. The owner complained to the authorities, and so Paul and Silas were imprisoned. After Paul was released, he told the magistrate of his Roman citizenship, and so the magistrate politely asked him to leave the city. <laughs> Please go. At this point, the we passages stop for a significant time. Paul and Silas then traveled to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and then to Corinth. Paul then stayed in Corinth for 18 months, Acts 18, verse 10. This sojourn can be dated from the end of 49 AD to mid-51 AD. Paul then traveled to Syrian Antioch via Sincrea, Ephesus in Turkey, and Caesarea, Palestine. He then visited various places in Galatia and Phrygia, which is Turkey, and then returned to Ephesus again, where he stayed for just over two years. Paul then traveled to Macedonia and then Achaia, which is Greece, where he stayed for three months. He then returned to Philippi in Macedonia. So what we have, in essence, is we have a lot of traveling around and we have the interspersing on occasion of we and our and us. And... To Hadley's very perceptive reading of the passage and a great question, it would appear as though, yes, Luke was with Paul on 
significant parts of his journey. And yes, actually that does bear mentioning because that increases the credibility of the testimony. Not that we should doubt it, but for those who do doubt, it should increase our testimony reliability perception score (laughs) that Luke is actually here with Paul for significant parts of this. And the parts where he's not there, you know, I personally, I have no struggle at all with the idea that Luke is asking those who were present for these other events that he's writing down in Acts, that he's just asking them when he is traveling with them and he's writing these things down. And then he goes away for a time and he comes back and he's like, okay, what did I miss? I have no problem with that at all. In fact, that seems like a very normal, very lifelike kind of flow. But there you go. I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can read the full article here, Luke's Eyewitness Accounts and Acts by Kevin Rogers. I got through maybe a quarter, maybe a third. I don't know. And there's still more to go. But for now, we'll move on. And I want to talk a little bit about current events. And you know, it's interesting, Luke being a physician, and we have that passed down to us as an understanding that he was a physician. He was a doctor. Luke having been a doctor makes me think a little bit differently about some of the descriptions, some of the details that are included. To be a doctor in our day, our expectation is that, very similar to in Leviticus 22, the best, the best and the brightest should be doctors. Only the best, only the smartest, and we hope the most honorable, those of best character, those who are most honest, those who really care most for people. We want to have doctors who practice medicine well and in a professional way. They don't abuse the trust that is put in them. They're not careless. They're not sloppy. They're not malicious. They're not greedy for unjust gain. Keeping patients unwell so that they can continue milking them for money. But something that has always made me a bit uncomfortable about physicians, and I'll just, I'll be honest with you, this is not some profound theological point, and don't take it as thus saith Garrett. But I was raised by, on the one hand, a mother who was from the Deep South, who went to Pensacola Christian, and then on to Bob Jones, and then on to Cedarville University, And on the other hand, the father who was raised Mennonite, and I was raised to believe that modesty is first and foremost a matter of covering up your body, (laughs) that you, you keep yourself covered. And those who show skin are not modest. And that might be true, but there is a bit more to it that I've come to understand as I've gotten older. I took some art classes at Cedarville, for instance, and that was one of the things that we talked about was, okay, what about paintings and statues from history that include the unclothed human figure? What do you do with that? Is that immodest? Well, perhaps, maybe even just the idea of painting anything at all, actually, is immodest, What's the point? What's the intent? Well, so also, when Lauren and I were going to Cedarville, I didn't have a declared major. I later on, after we left Cedarville, decided to study business and take online courses from Kaplan University and then later Liberty University online. It was a, a great option for me because 
I was working full-time and helping with church, and we were raising a family, starting our family, having children. Lauren was staying home with them when she wasn't working as a STNA. But before we got married, when we were at Cedarville, she was studying nursing, and she was going to be a nurse. And I remember really grappling with, this might just sound super silly, but I really wrestled with, well, if modesty means keeping every square inch of your body covered all the time, then what makes medical professionals such an exception that somebody goes to a medical professional and medical professionals, on the one hand, are given permission to see people in states of undress to help them with medical problems. And on the other hand, if you were going to be a medical professional, you're going to be seeing people in states of undress. And I really wrestled with that. And it was, I think, more difficult for me to square these things than many modern people would probably uh, understand or appreciate. Many people who grow up in the mainstream might just laugh at that and say, oh, that's so silly. But it, it was really a struggle for me because I was raised to believe modesty has to do with keeping every square inch of skin covered. And that might be part of it, but that's that's actually really not first and foremost the point of modesty, just to cover skin. And that's a part of it. But the question of intent comes back into the picture again when we realize that a medical professional who's trying to help you because you've just been in, let's say, a major car accident, for instance, or you need to undergo surgery, for instance, or let's say they're delivering a baby. I've delivered several of our children, but you know, what if I'm not available and it's some doctor or it's some nurse who needs to bring my child into this world? The intent there is not to do something shameful and it's not to give inappropriate attention in an exploitative way or in a sexual way. The intent there is to administer care and to be healing, let's say, or mending somebody who is very broken, they're, they're damaged, they've had a traumatic injury, or they have some kind of an illness that needs to be operated on, or they have a, a baby to give birth to, for instance. Certainly when a baby's born, or when you're changing diapers for years and years and years. <laughs> There's just no way around it. To give an infant a bath, there's no way around it. You, somebody's got to change them. Somebody's got to clean them. Somebody's got to give them wipe downs. Also with the elderly, at a certain point, older people just can't take care of themselves like they used to. And so somebody has to. And so that belongs in a different category. Art in not all cases, but in many cases, belongs in something of a different category. Not to the extent that most people take it, but there's more to it, is my point. There's more to it than just how much skin is showing. And yet, there has to be an appropriate way to talk about some of these things, even just in a theological way, or with regards to morality, with regards to current events. So for instance, let me just give you an example uh, from my circle of friends, I have friends who have been first responders or they are emergency response personnel. They're EMTs or nurses or law enforcement. 
what happens when somebody gets brought in who is in a state of undress? Do you just not administer them? Do, do you not administer any kind of care or do you not do your duties because they're in a state of undress? You know, let's suppose that my friend who's a cop gets a call of some kind of a domestic disturbance and somebody is running around completely stark naked. They're high on something or they're drunk or they're mentally ill. They have some major issue. My friend who's a cop, does he close his eyes and then try to cover this person and take them in? Or does my friend who's a cop just say, hey, listen, you can't be running around out in public without any clothes on, sir, madam. (laughs) I'm going to have to ask you to put some clothes on. We know the answer, right? We know the answer. The intent there is actually protective. It's not to do something shameful. It's not to be embarrassing. It's not to harm this person, nor to harm the public. The intent is protective and restorative. And so also, when we come to these passages in Leviticus, or when we're considering in the New Testament, there are examples of nakedness in the New Testament as well. I talked about one recently over Easter, the young man who had been following Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrest Jesus, he's wearing nothing but a sheet or a linen cloth. And the soldiers, they try to grab him, seize him, arrest him, detain him as well because he's been with Jesus. And all they get is the linen cloth. And then he runs off into the darkness naked, not a stitch on. And that's mentioned briefly to humiliate him. No, I think just to describe that this is part of what was going on. There was a little bit of chaos there. And yeah, there is shame, but that shame being described is not the same thing as the author of the gospel account trying to shame this individual person who might have been the author himself. There's a lot of speculation that the young man in Mark's gospel is John Mark himself. But I bring this up because in this day, increasingly, we have to reckon with people who are not well or who are perverse or who are malicious, who are flaunting their immorality in a very preachy way, in a very activist way. We have to be able to reckon with their situation on some level to know what to do with it. To, to know what to make of it, to know what we should do, if anything, about it. If this becomes social contagion, then at a certain point, there is no avoiding it. And if you go back in time, a few hundred years when this country was first being settled, the common description of many Native Americans that Europeans would encounter is that they did not dress with so much of the body covered in warmer climates as would be typical for Europeans. Many of them, even to this day, in parts of South America or on various islands or in parts of Africa or in Australia, many today, still today, are wearing not a whole lot, not a great, great deal. And perhaps, just maybe, this is speculative, perhaps that's okay in a certain sense because we go back again to the question of intent for the individual. Are they trying to draw attention to themselves wearing what's fashionable? 
are they trying to be activists? Are they trying to be aggressive and malicious and make people uncomfortable? Are they trying to normalize something that is immoral or shameful? Or has that ship sailed? You know, maybe, just maybe, when we look at the Greeks, for instance, in antiquity, and we see on their statuary and on their art that shows up in mosaics and on vases, and we see the unclothed human form again and again, maybe, just maybe, it wasn't that long before their golden age and all this art, it wasn't that long before that they were in a similar spiritual state as a society to what America until recently was. Oh, we don't know, right? We don't know. Maybe it was centuries and maybe at a certain point people started agitating because there was a spiritual influence from demons and God gave them over. They wanted to worship these false gods and they wanted to be immoral. And so God gave them over to being unreasonable. And then gradually, not just accidentally, but very intentionally, their history was revised and they engaged in something like cultural amnesia. They forgot where they came from. They forgot that not so long before their forefather had been one of those saved on the ark. And at that time, it was shameful to point out the nakedness of one's father. By Greek antiquity, you might make a statue of him for thousands of years of descendants to come to admire. You might make a statue of him completely in the buff. But when one of Noah's sons pointed out that their father, hey guys, look, their father had passed out drunk and naked in the tent, as I read it, I mean, there are, there are other interpretations, which I won't get into for the purposes of this podcast, but the response from Noah when he found out about it was very severe. It was to curse him and all his descendants forever, to be slaves of his brother's descendants. And I think it's a whole lot of hooey and hogwash that people justified the slavery of black Africans on that basis or tried to. That's a whole lot of hooey for many reasons. But nevertheless, Noah's other two sons backed into the tent holding a blanket or a cloth or a sheet and laid it over their father so that they wouldn't see him. Like they knew that there was something inappropriate about making sport or poking fun or laughing about their dad being passed out naked in the tent because he got into the wine, probably experiencing something like PTSD actually from the global flood. If a global flood that wiped out all life on planet earth, except what was on the ark, if that wouldn't give you PTSD or survivor's guilt in some sense, man alive. Noah probably had the worst case ever of it. But I bring this up because I think we should look at intention. I think we should consider what people's reasons are for dressing the way that they do and also for drawing attention to states of undress and dress the way that they do in our context. There can be an appropriate scientific and medical context where the intention is not to be lewd or disgraceful or exploitative or sexually immoral. There can be an appropriate caretaking for those who are elderly or those who are infants or those who are invalids that is needed and right. There can be cultural considerations. 
where we say, okay, what's normative? And actually in a certain way, it might be surprising to us if we've grown up thinking about modesty, like I grew up thinking about modesty, in a certain way, maybe actually some of these people who live in remote jungles of Africa or South America, maybe in their own way, they're actually trying to be modest because they're actually not trying to draw attention. And we know that because they're just wearing what the fashion is. Now, it doesn't mean we wear what they wear in their context here, because then it would be drawing attention. But if we were a missionary to their tribe, there are some important questions that are reasonable to ask. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but they're reasonable to ask about whether you dress in a way that would be typical, that would not draw undue attention to your wardrobe, because that actually might be uh, an issue of immodesty more than if you dressed like them, you dress like a foreigner and all of a sudden you will have everybody's attention. Sometimes there's just no getting around having everybody's attention because you're clearly not from around here. They're a very insulated, isolated community or skin color differences. If they've never seen a white man, for instance, and you're a white missionary and there's just no getting around that you're going to draw stares and eyeballs. And also you want to some extent to be able to draw people's attention, just to be able to share the gospel with them. So there are limits, right? But my point is at a bare minimum, no pun intended, how God's word talks about these things and addresses these things, how God himself gives instructions to give instructions And then we have these things written down and given even to our day. And we're reading them, talking about them. And all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That should be instructive. And we want to be careful that we don't think things even with regards to clothing and attire and modesty. Even if they're right, we don't want to think them first and foremost because that's traditional. And that's just what everybody my family or my community has always thought, we want to make sure that we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. But let's talk about a current event that pertains here. Hank Berrien writes for The Daily Wire, trans lifeguard bears breasts to kids at job tryout. GOP mayor condemns wokeism. I'll put a link in. You can read the full story if you want. Long and short of it, we have here a woman who identifies as male who, within view of 40 to 50 children, no more than 15 to 20 feet away in Jacksonville, Florida, decided to take off her shirt amidst the tryouts, just like the guys were. And what did she have under the shirt? She had breasts because she is a she. And now you've got a debate in Jacksonville, Florida about whether that's lewdness, whether that's inappropriate displays of the human anatomy, the female anatomy in particular, because the female anatomy is different than the male anatomy. And the woke folk are saying, don't be such a bigot. And the more conservative folk are saying, this woman is literally walking around topless with dozens of children right there. And she didn't get the job, spoiler alert. But what is the intention? That's my question. That's my ask here. What's the intention of this trans person, this woman, what's her intention in taking off her shirt and trying out for lifeguard bare-chested? Is her intention innocent? If she said what, what's the big deal? Was she being sincere? Was she being genuine? And what should the response be? And how do you know what the response should be? Might I suggest to you that this is 
immodest, not first and foremost because of what skin was exposed, but because the intent was to draw attention. The intent was selfish and self-promoting. The intent was not to honor anyone else in the situation here. The intent was self-promotion entirely, purely, 100%. And the intent of the leftists who are seizing on this story is also 100% self-promotion and malicious towards their political opponents. So this was a stunt. Whether this woman actually wanted the job as a lifeguard, I think is highly questionable. This was activism. And if we put it in those terms and we say, the big idea, the big win at the end of the day for these folk is to liberate ourselves from any objective standard of morality where sex and gender are concerned. Ultimately, to liberate ourselves from God telling us, you will, you won't, do, don't, be, don't be. When we understand that that's really the big prize for these folks and they want everybody, everyone to celebrate and affirm and go in with them on this new religion of woke, when we understand that, then I think we can know what to do about it. But I see this as qualitatively a different scenario almost the opposite kind of a scenario to what if you were in the context of some jungle tribe where they wear far less clothing in their tropical climate. They wear far less clothing culturally than we do in the West, in Europe or in the United States of America. What if you're in that context? When in Rome do as the Romans do, as St. Ambrose once famously said, is that the standard? I think that's a very different kind of a scenario to assess. That's my point. But moving on, let's talk briefly about Evangeline Lilly, actress who I think made her debut on the ABC show Lost back in the day, back in my teenage years. Also starred in Ant-Man alongside Paul Rudd. Evangeline Lilly, you'll remember, spoke out against the COVID lockdowns and the mandates, spoke out in support of the Canadian trucker convoy, drew a lot of attention for that. She recently posted here to Instagram and the blaze picked up the story. And I quote, why are we only applauding masculinity in women and villainizing it in men? And why are we only applauding femininity in men and debasing it in women? Why can't we just allow for all of it? Why do we feel the need to vilify a man wearing, language alert here, shit kicker boots, driving a pickup truck who's not afraid to punch someone in the face, but if they were a woman, they would be the epitome of cool? Why is a man who loves makeup, cries easily, and stays at home to tend to the domestic responsibilities valiant, but a woman who does the same is pathetic? I think the truly revolutionary act is, as old as time, do not judge Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, etc. Let each be who they are and let us teach grace and charity above all things. These overarching ideas are far simpler and more effective than trying to juggle the minutia of judgment. They are ideas that protect us all from the excesses of each person's vices while still allowing the expression of their self. Grace and charity are cornerstones of a thriving society and should not be abandoned. We need them like we need democracy, justice, and peace. And without them, we can't have democracy, justice, or peace. Quote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, St. Augustine of Hippo, from the desert oasis of Siwa, Egypt. So 
here she's pictured because of course that's what Instagram is. She's pictured with a headscarf and some Egyptian uh, blouse or dress on the banks of the river. And I agree with some of this. Uh, most of it. I, I agree with most of what she said. I, I agree with most of it. I very much appreciated her having the courage to speak up on behalf of the Canadian trucker convoy. Kudos to that. She scored a lot of points in my book for that, but I don't think that was her intention, which means she scored bonus points. Uh, in this case, I, I caution with saying, do not judge and stopping there. What Jesus said, you know, set aside Buddha and Lao Tzu and etc. What Jesus said was, do not judge lest you be judged. But he also said, do not judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. And we get right judgment from God. So when God tells us this is the standard to judge with right judgment, we have to agree that that is the standard. When God says this is good, this is the way, walk you in it. When God says thou shalt, thou shalt not, do, do not, this is who you are, this is what I've called you to, then that is our standard of judgment. So she's close, right? She's, she's really, really close. And I'm not trying to be too critical here, but we have to have a standard of judgment in order to be able to say to those who are aggressively terrorizing people for nothing so much as just saying, hey, keep your shirt on, gal. You're a woman. We got kids here. You're going to make everybody very uncomfortable and it's going to cause a huge upset. And for what? The people who are terrorizing and trying to destroy anybody who would object and say, hey, please put, put your clothes back on. Or who would say, leave the kids alone. Don't molest them. Don't mutilate their bodies. Don't manipulate them into thinking that they'll be happy and they'll be welcomed and they'll be affirmed and they'll be celebrated and they'll be rewarded if they have their sex organs removed and we all become androgynous. We have to have a right standard of judgment to fully obey Jesus with regards to judging. And yes, I say obey Jesus because the Great Commission is go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Command is a word that speaks to authority, not just education. Now you're free to not, but there will be consequences. He who hears the words of Jesus and lives by them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And I love the Augustine quote. I do. I love it. It's great. And there's an appropriate application here. So kudos to Evangeline Lilly for quoting Augustine. But what will be needed is a more complete repudiation of the push to androgenize everyone and to intimidate and bully everybody who objects. I hope and I pray that Evangeline Lilly appreciates that or sees that at a certain point because she's not far. She's not far from really getting it here, but let's move on. Let's talk about Joe Biden. In the time that we have left in this episode, let's talk about a press conference that he announced Friday afternoon, a major press conference that did not happen. That was not to be. I'll play a clip, thanks to Tim Meads over at the Daily Wire for highlighting this. I'll play a clip from yesterday. You can take a listen. This one is a tweet from RNC Research of John King 
at CNN reacting to Joe Biden telling the press, I love y'all, but get out. Here's cut one. Take a listen. Um, you know, I, I think we, we, we've got a lot of work to do. I'm, uh, and I'm doing a, a major press conference this afternoon, so uh, I love you all, but I'd like to ask you to leave so we can get down to business. Mr. President. Russia, Russia has alleged that the drone attack over the Kremlin was that the U.S. was behind it. I'll be happy to talk to you about that, but not now. Mr. President, yesterday here in this room, you talked about the dangers of AI. What are the dangers you see, sir? And did you hear anything from the executives that assuaged your concerns? There are dangers. We'll get a chance to talk about all those things, I promise you. You said a press Reporters trying to sneak in some questions as they're escorted out of the room at the White House. The President of the United States saying this is news to us that he would have a press conference later today and answer more questions. We'll get you more information on that as we get it. Spoiler alert. There was no major press conference. There wasn't one. So either... A, Biden was confused and he thought there was going to be a major press conference and there wasn't one, or he was wanting to have one and the people who actually make the decisions for him said, uh, no, no, Mr. President, we're not doing that. But why would there be such a urgency to pushing the press out? Why might this administration not particularly want to take questions right now? Glenn Beck over at TheBlaze.com just did a segment where he was talking about the joint statement from two U.S. senators, one Chuck Grassley, the other from James Comer, saying that, and I quote, the whistleblower is alleging the FBI and Justice Department are in possession of a document that describes a criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Joe Biden and a foreign national relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions. Is this possibly why? Is this perhaps why there is no appetite for Joe Biden taking questions from the press right now? Could this be a factor? I would agree with Glenn Beck that If this is true, and there's a lot of evidence with the whole Hunter Biden laptop business, there's a lot of evidence that that is exactly what the Biden family has been doing for years and for decades, taking money from foreign nationals in exchange for access to information, in exchange for action from the United States, Biden being the hinge point or the pressure point in the U.S. government to initiate what he is paid to initiate in in effect. If this is in fact the case, I would agree with Glenn Beck that this is the worst presidential scandal ever. How would that not rise to the level of treason, actually? And if that would not be treasonous for an American president or an American vice president, former U.S. senator, to take bribes from foreign countries, if that's not treason for him to be acting contrary to America's interests, then what would be?
pray tell? What would be? Consider, if you will, also a piece by Tim Meads at the Daily Wire just yesterday, Biden's climate endgame, a $50 trillion bridge to racial equity, and some questioning from Senator Kennedy to the Honorable David Turk, Deputy Secretary for the U.S. Department of Energy. I'll go ahead and play cut two here, and you can listen to the way that Kennedy's question is answered, or not answered, as the case may be. Thanks to Young Americans for Liberty for tweeting out this video, and to Tim Meads over at the Daily Wire for sharing it. Here it is. Cut two. Take a listen. Percent of global emissions. Yeah, but if right you could now. answer my question, if we spend $50 trillion to become carbon neutral in the United States of America by 2050, you're the Deputy Secretary of Energy. Give me your estimate of how much that is going to reduce world temperatures. So, so first of all, it's a net cost. Um, it's what uh, benefits we're having from getting our act together and reducing all of those climate benefits. We're seeing. Let me ask again. Maybe I'm being. Right now. Maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent $50 trillion to become carbon neutral by 2050 in the United States of America, how, how much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, countries. is it going to reduce so world we're temperatures? So we're 13% of global emissions. You don't right know, now. do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to. You reduce. don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13% of if global emissions. If you know, emissions. why won't if you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13%. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion, and you don't have the slightest idea whether it's going to reduce world temperatures. Now, I'm all for carbon neutrality, but you're the deputy secretary of the Department of Energy, and you're advocating we spend trillions of dollars to seek carbon neutrality, and you can't, and this isn't your money or my money, it's taxpayer money, and you can't tell me how much it's going to lower world temperatures? There, or you won't tell me? You know, but you won't? In my heart of hearts, there is no way the world gets its act together on climate change unless the U.S. leads. Tell me how much it's the going US to reduce. You, you can't tell me. Either that or you won't. And either way, either way. <laughs> He's not answering the question, and in some sense, that's all we need to know. If the amount of temperature change were a number that we would be excited about, and we would say, all right, you know what? I think that's worth it. Let's do it. Let's spend $50,000 billion, because that's how much $50 trillion is. $50,000 billion. Yeah, let's do it. If it were an amount of temperature change that justified that expenditure of our tax dollars, that much devaluation of our currency, then we would already know it. Kennedy wouldn't even need to ask for it. If it's such a uncertain number that they don't want us to know, that they don't know, or if it's such an infinitesimal number that they don't want us to know, either way, we have the answer in the evasiveness of this member of the Biden administration in the Department of Energy, by the way. Now he says, well, the rest of the world isn't going to do their part unless the U.S. does our part. And a conservative like me would say, countries like China and Russia and Iran are not going to get on board with this regardless. And so all we're really doing is handing the world over to them. 
we are giving them the world and we have been for some time, but this would be the grand finale. This guy's boss, by the way, wants our entire U.S. military to go all electric, by the way. But now go back and think about Biden not even knowing or not being able to decide either way whether there's a major press conference on a Friday afternoon when he pushes the reporters out and refuses to take any questions. Now go back to the whistleblower saying that the FBI and the DOJ have evidence of bribes being taken in exchange for policy decisions from foreign nationals, foreigners paying Biden, not directly, but through his family, with his full knowledge and consent, paying his family so that certain decisions are made that are advantageous to those foreign nationals, regardless of whether they're in our national interest. And now come back to Kennedy's question to the undersecretary for the Department of Energy, about $50 trillion. Where's that money going? $50 trillion. What if the bribes from foreign nationals were in exchange for sabotaging the United States of America on a global on the global stage? What if this is the 30 pieces of silver that Biden is paid to sell America to her enemies? In effect, that's what it is. But what if it weren't even possible to claim, well, he didn't realize, he didn't understand, he didn't know what he was doing? What if he did know exactly what he was doing this whole time? And what if they just buttered it up and used euphemisms? I mean, these are the people who are lying to us about whether men are men or women are are women. These are the people who are lying to us about what our children are being taught in the public schools, not my children, and this is why we homeschool, but American children. These are the same people who lie to us about the most basic fundamentals of human nature and their relationship to our children. And they don't take questions from even a lapdog media. I mean, just realize with me for a moment how constrained media access to Biden is. And remember when Obama was president and Ben Rhodes bragged about their having created echo chambers in the American media to perpetrate falsehoods about Iran so that they could ship a whole bunch of gold to Iran. If we go to war with Iran and Russia and China, and that's World War III, it's kind of a big deal that we facilitated, we funded Iran's capacity to fight us and our allies. That's kind of a big deal. If we go to war with China and Biden has been taking money for years from China, if we go to war with Russia and Biden has been taking money from Russia for years, and then it just so happens that our fighting force is not able to win because they had drag queens promoting recruitment for the Navy, all our military vehicles were required to be electric or else be grounded. All of our water supply is contaminated because the trains are derailing left and right with hazardous materials seeping into the groundwater. While at the same time, this administration claims to care so much about the environment, maybe it's not actually for the environment that they want to spend $50 trillion. Maybe it's to collapse the American economy because they're also, you can't fight and win a war 
if you don't have an economy. If somebody sabotages the American economy systematically right before a major world war or a major cold war with Russia, Iran, China, and it just so happens that they're taking bribes from foreign nationals and the FBI and the DOJ have evidence that the president of the United States of America was taking bribes from foreign nationals and they're not doing anything about it, then can we trust anything that they have to say at the FBI or the DOJ about national security, about their protecting our national interest? This seems like your moment to either put up or shut up, FBI, DOJ. It seems to me as though this is where you are needed most. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being led away to the slaughter. If you say, we didn't know this, does not he who weighs and measures your heart understand that you're lying? I'm paraphrasing. I think this is the reason why our economy is being systematically overhauled to collapse the American economy. I don't think that this is all good faith. I don't think it's all bad faith. I think there are a lot of people who are just brainwashed and they're just following the person in front of them. They're just being sheep and they're being led to the slaughter. And whether they're actively pursuing it or they're passively allowing for it, the effect is the same at the end of the day that we are being destroyed. Our economy is being destroyed. Individual families are having a harder and harder time making ends meet. The increase in the cost of food and fuel and utilities and homes while wages are stagnant, layoffs are announced week after week by the tens of thousands from major tech companies. The economy is not doing great. We've got banks collapsing. Three out of four of the biggest bank collapses in American history have happened under this president, and they are not deterred. They want to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They want to say, everything's fine. It's not fine. It's not okay. These are the people who are lying to us and threatening anybody who challenges them on their lies about men and women and about unborn children. Switching gears a little bit, let's stop talking about Biden. I've got three more current events items to share with you. You can tell that the left is not accustomed to being cross-examined or challenged in the clip that I'm about to play for you. This is cut three from Timcast, IRL, Tim Pool's podcast. Without introducing it, I'm just going to play it for you. This has to do with the subject of abortion and the consistency or lack thereof for those who are pro-abortion, pro-death. They say they're pro-choice, but they're pro-abortion really, truly. Here's cut three. Take a listen. You believe that the moment after the child is outside of the birth canal... Sure. that they are now endowed with human rights. Yes. However, when they are inside of the mother, literally anything you do to them is acceptable because they're inside of the mother. Oh, no, I don't think anything is acceptable, but I think the mother should still have the choice, ultimate uh, authority over what happens to her body. But wait, there's wait, wait, a child wait, 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 inside wait, wait, of her hold body. On, hold on, hold on. What her, about yes. meth? Uh, like, should she be allowed to do meth? Yeah. Uh, I think if someone is doing meth while they're pregnant, that it is completely acceptable for something like... Uh, I don't know what the name of the service is in the United States. Child for, services? I guess Child, like Child services? would be... Oh, yeah. well, it's her body, though. Yeah, it's her body. If she wants to do meth, what's the big deal? Uh, the big deal is that it's, she's intentionally trying to kill a child. Hold on there a minute. Yeah, and I see where we're going. I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. 
It's her body. It's her if body. If she wants to do meth, what's the problem? Well, first off, doing meth is illegal, period. Doesn't matter if you're doing it. Mm. Right. You see what just happened there? There's no consistency. <clears throat> and also, the folks who are for abortion are not accustomed to being challenged and debated. They're not accustomed to taking questions. And so these things don't make sense. But the very scary thing is this same kind of double think, double speak, this same kind of rationalization is how they approach every other issue. In the interest of consistency, they're consistently inconsistent. They're consistently not reasonable about these things. So on the topic of abortion, it took less than a minute to realize, yeah, actually, you don't believe these things you're saying. You're just saying things that you believe because that's been the status quo, but you really haven't actually thought about this. You're just saying things are good or appropriate or true and you protect them and you defend them and you uphold them because they're legal, but you actually haven't thought about this. You haven't thought about whether it's good that this is legal. That's really the question. Is it good that this is legal? Should this be legal? But he ends off with, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the woman is pregnant or not because it's not legal to do math anyways. Well, wait, 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 wait. But in the interest of consistency, if you say a woman should be able to do whatever she wants with her body, then how can you oppose a woman doing hard drugs while pregnant? And the reason that folks who are pro-abortion are opposed to women doing hard drugs while they're pregnant is because if that baby is born, well, now all of a sudden it gets more complicated for us to dispose of that human life that we don't want to take care of or to take care of that human life, which is now going to have lifelong health problems. That little baby boy, that little baby girl is going to have lifelong health problems. And now they become our problem, which is really actually the reason why you're pro-abortion, because you don't want to have to deal with problems. You want the next generation or the would-be next generation to have to deal with those problems. And the same kind of thinking was passed down to us from the baby boomers. And this is why I say again that the sooner the baby boomers are out of power, no longer calling the shots, the sooner maybe perhaps possibly we have the wake-up call with people like Tim Pool, for instance, people like Ben Shapiro, for instance, people like Charlie Kirk, for instance. Have you noticed that a lot of the folks on the left are either bought and paid for by major corporate media, so they're given a script, if they deviate from that script, well, then they're gone. Or they are the super sketchy, greasy Antifa types. But then just because you put somebody in a suit and a nice looking set and you have high powered cameras and high production values and everything is carefully curated, that doesn't mean that what you're getting is any less greasy. It might be more greasy in its way. On the flip side, you have conservatives who are being honest and genuine and we don't all agree. And that becomes a point of criticism and insecurity for conservatives, actually. But then in some sense, that's our strength. The fact that I could disagree with on a broad range of topics and issues, any and all of the conservative commentators who are doing podcasts and shows these days, if we got into debating policy, we could disagree and we would all disagree on 
a number of things. We would have broad agreement on some very important fundamental foundational things, but we would disagree on a lot of the particulars should tell us where the true liberty tree grows. It grows with conservatives. If you want to be free, don't go over to the left where they demand that everybody be reading from the same script, all the while accusing conservatives of being repressive. You want to know what's you want to know what's repressive is cancel culture and this woke business. And it's arbitrary. You can't even keep up with it. What is supposedly progressive today might tomorrow turn out to be not nearly enough. And then there will be calls to boycott you and pull your advertising. And all the while, the left is incensed that men like me would disagree, would question, would challenge, would cross-examine. It really makes them uncomfortable. It really scares them. It, it has to tell us something of how fragile the view of the world, the philosophy, the theology, the anthropology, the political situation is for the left, that even just us being able to speak freely online scares them as bad as it does. It's something of a tell. And that's part of the reason why I keep on podcasting. Until the day that all of a sudden... I'm not able to because some new regulations come out saying my access to the publishing tools has to be removed. Until that day comes, I'm going to keep on podcasting because if there's a whole bunch of characters like me who each have our little audiences, in the long run, there's at least a chance that this country turns away from the rabid, self-destructive folly of the left. There's at least a chance. And historically, these kinds of crazy spells have come and gone. If Jesus interrupts this one by coming again, his second coming interrupts this one, I will be pleased. I will be very happy. I will celebrate. Hallelujah. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But I should like for him to find me busy and active. And when he says, if he says to me, which I Open, pray for, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. When he says that, I should like for it to be rest that I very much long for because I've been busy. I've been active. I've been investing the talents the master entrusted to me. Speaking up for those who are being led away to the slaughter, for instance. Calling for repentance for those who are dead in their sins. Whether they're in positions of power and authority and they have great wealth or They're just jealous of everybody they think has those things. Another story regarding transgenderism and advertising and corporatism, Commodore Vanderbilt over at Not To Be published a piece this morning. Smirnoff is distancing itself from its transgender ad partner who flashed his genitals in front of teenage children and women. After the Bud Light fiasco last month, how many brands and companies do you think are regretting partnering up with transgender Activists, we can certainly add Smirnoff to the list. A trans woman and drag queen appeared to promote a paid partnership with Smirnoff, but the vodka retailer is denying any current deal with the budding activist. Several recent Instagram posts from drag queen and trans woman, Maxine Lequeen, featured the official paid partnership with Smirnoff tags, denoting that the major liquor retailer has hired the biological male for promotional material. Smirnoff quickly rushed to deny any relationship with the activist. LaQueen is not currently a Smirnoff partner, and this is a quote, 
and does not currently have any contact with Smirnoff. Hmm, not currently. Does not currently. That's very conditional language. <laughs> so it turns out that Smirnoff did partner with this man at one point. He was one of the participants in a promotional campaign in the fall of 2022, but not now, in 2023. So why would Smirnoff be trying to bury that relationship under six feet of weasel words? Well, Oli London tweets out May 4th, Meet the face of Smirnoff U.S., a radical trans activist who participated in an illegal insurrection in the Texas State House this week and flashed his backside and genitals in front of teenage children and women. He also testified in opposition to SB 14 against a ban on child genital surgeries. He campaigns for children, yet his Twitter is littered with horrifying explicit content. Is this person someone who should be the face of a vodka brand? Hmm. Hmm. Yes, by the way, with the whole flashing thing that occurred in a public place, the Texas state legislature, reportedly with women and children nearby. There's a screenshot, definitely turning over and mooning those who are behind him with law enforcement standing beside him on three sides. Lequeen claimed he was merely trying to help his friend up and did not realize he had exposed his private parts to the entire assembly. Uh Uh-huh, just like a real lady. See, this is not healthy. This is not well. At best, this is mental illness. That's the best thing you could say, in which case we shouldn't be normalizing it. We shouldn't be championing it. We shouldn't be celebrating it. We shouldn't be affirming it. Worst case scenario, this is a satanic attack on the moral fiber of this country from people who are only limited by their imagination. They only think all the time about wanting to do evil because they see doing evil as liberation. And here's where we should recognize there are medical professionals. There are very serious people with lots of money who use smooth words. They live in well-furnished apartments and mansions. There are supposedly very respectable people who fund this, who affirm this, who are not nearly so concerned about this as they are anybody who would stand up to it and oppose it. And we should take note of who those people are as well and not trust them. One last story. This one from Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee. DeSantis interrupts woke reporter to demolish the press for their use of euphemisms like gender-affirming healthcare. This will be the last cut, the last clip I play for you. Here it is, one last one, and then some closing remarks. Take a listen. Cultural issues that you've identified with. Do you think American voters want a How many of these people way? were paid to come? I mean, like, honestly, it's like, so, seriously, some of this stuff is just totally manufactured. And I, when you talk to people, and I know, like, people in your industry will dress it up with a euphemism, and they'll say it's, it's health care to cut off the private parts of a 14 or 15-year-old. That is not health care. That is mutilation. And so when we're standing up against that... And so when we're standing up against that, we're protecting these kids. We had Chloe Cole. We've had other people who who went through this when they were minors. Now they're older. And it's like the biggest regret of their life. They feel like that they were manipulated. I understand there's some physicians that are very ideological about it. But the fact is, people go through a lot when they're teenagers. 
You grow out of it most of the time in these situations. 80, 90% resolves by the time you get there. Sweden, these European countries that went down this road have done a big U-turn. They said this is not good uh, uh, medical practice. And so they don't do it anymore. So all we're doing is is doing what's right. Um, The idea that this would have been something that people would have been, it would have even been controversial, even like 10 years ago, would not have been something that anybody would have said anything about. And I just think, you know, when you're, when you're talking about this stuff, uh, talk about what did the legislature do? The legislature prohibited doing things like double mastectomies. They prohibited doing things, you know, with, uh, with male private parts that are very graphic. Okay. No pun intended. Cut. <clears throat> Understand intent and its relevance for medical care. And don't assume that just because somebody went to medical school or they have some big high-powered degree, don't assume that they have the best of intentions or that you can be naive as to what they're capable of. I said this years ago regarding vaccines in general when my wife and I decided we would opt for home births and also decline to have our children go through the vaccination schedule. She did the research. She shared it with me. I agreed. I posted to Facebook about it. I had a number of family members who were healthcare professionals who took umbrage, who insulted me, who berated me. And I said at the time, here was my point. The very fact that abortion is not just legal, but there are people who went to medical school who perform these tens of millions of abortions over the last 50 years proves to me that you can't just take medical professionals' word for it. You can't just take the medical establishment's word for it. You can't just take our government's word for it. And just a few short, just a few short years later, here came the COVID pandemic and public health officials locking not just our country down, but the world down, demanding that people social distance and mask up and vaccinate or else their lives would be destroyed. And now, where are we at with so-called gender-affirming care? Radical leftists, Satanists, cross-dressers, transvestites, with corporate backing, with the full endorsement of the Democratic Party and some Republicans, some very squishy Republicans and some very moderate professing evangelical Christians in the mainstream, demanding that it be legal and that nobody say anything critical about it. Nobody try to stop it. Nobody try to criticize it or disagree with it or question it. When doctors cut the reproductive organs, the sex organs, out of little boys and little girls. When public schools give our children pornography to study and encourage them to share their fantasies with their teachers. And oh, by the way, when teachers have sex with their students that's been regarded as a heinous thing, but we're always told, well, that's the exception. Bad things happen outside of public school too and before public schools were a thing. And my point in stringing all these things together is not that you shouldn't trust anybody, but my point is we need to be students of what God's word says about the heart of man, the goodness of God. Absolutely. We should remember keep at the fore of our minds, but we shouldn't be naive as to people 
And just because somebody has a lot of wealth or a lot of power or they have some big fancy degree or they're a medical professional or they're a journalist, supposedly so-called, they're a member of the media and they wear fancy clothes and they get on the TV or the radio or the internet and they tell you this, that, or the other thing. We need to be going back to God's word and we need to be considering intent. So at what point do you say this person is only saying what they're saying because they're afraid. They're afraid to be destroyed if they object. Intent is very important. And we have to consider what influences, what pressures are being applied to anyone who would object. Like, for instance, the pressures that are being applied to Ron DeSantis down in Florida, even from supposedly conservative mega donors, major financial backers of Republican candidates at the presidential level. What kind of pressure is being brought to bear on somebody like Ron DeSantis for saying, you cannot molest our children, you cannot corrupt our children, you cannot mutilate our children's bodies and call that healthcare. It's not healthcare. That's abuse. That's evil. We're going to criminalize that. We're not just going to tell you no. We're going to say, if you do it, there will be negative consequences. We have to consider intent also for those who stand to make a lot of money off of creating a state of dependence. Somebody goes through gender-affirming care, puberty blockers, reconstructive surgery to change out their sex organs, to make them look like a member of the opposite sex. All of a sudden, they're a customer for life. They are a customer for life who will keep having to buy medical services from a very specialized niche type of supposed medical care. Never mind that you created that dependence in the first place. You fed them the poison. You manipulated them into a state of dependence. Never mind that, as long as the checks keep clearing. And if they commit suicide at a certain point, well, I guess that's all the more reason why we need to normalize this so that we have a sustainable business model. Some people think. Some people reason like that, particularly if there's no fear of God before their eyes, particularly if they just view people as animals. And that's not even to say, what if they regard man as a parasite on the planet? If they regard America as what's wrong with the world, as the cause for all the world's problems, who cares if you collapse the American economy? Who cares if you mutilate the bodies of the next generation of children and you corrupt the minds of the next generation of young Americans? Who cares? Actually, maybe the sooner the better. And let's get it over with. And that's where the left is trying to take this country and the world with them. And it's evil. It is evil. It's not just that I disagree with it. God's word says that it's evil. God says this is evil. So kudos to Ron DeSantis for being very clear about it. And also, oh, by the way, for the Christians who want to say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament and all the rest. In the New Testament, the only example given of a reference to castration is when Paul is mocking the Judaizers for insisting that Gentile believers have to be circumcised. That is to say, undergoing a minor surgical procedure to remove the foreskin of the penis. Paul mocks them. And oh, by the way, lest we get too squeamish, let's just remember Leviticus talking about how the priests, if they have A crushed testicle shouldn't be engaging in certain parts of the regular service to God because God will require cleanness and wholeness and the very best 
not the leftovers, not the scraps, not what has been corrupted or tainted or affected by sin. But Paul says of the Judaizers, I wish that those who are bothering you about circumcision would go the whole way and castrate themselves. And he doesn't say that like, hey, this is a good thing. It's like, hey, this is a wake-up call. Snap out of it. The left is banking on making conservatives so uncomfortable, so unwelcome, that we just give up and go away and be quiet. What are our intentions? What are their intentions? What are our intentions? And do we know what we're about? Do we know what we should be about? Do we know what is good? Are we thinking on these things? Do we know what is praiseworthy and excellent and noble and upright and true that we think on these things? And also, do we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? If we do, we can't just keep it to ourselves. We have to implore them. We have to, if they're doing what is good, encourage them, build them up towards love and good deeds, not just deeds and not just whatever the world will accept as good deeds, but what God says is good is what we're supposed to be about. And so we should be encouraging those who are faint-hearted, those who are growing weary and doing what is good. We should be encouraging one another, which is to say you give courage to each other, give reasons to have courage, not discouraging, not drawing false moral equivalents so that everybody is equally wrong. That's not of God. That's not what God says. That's not what he tells us to say. That's not how he tells us to think. That's not how he tells us to be. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.